What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush. Here on Election Week Friday with Casey, we just got all our election talk out of the way beforehand, because who wants to hear that? Right? I have to say, it's it's Thursday, Chuck. So if something <laughs> happened between Thursday and Friday, <laughs> um, we, we may not, you know, our, our commentary might be uh, a little bit behind here. Yeah, of course, recording on Thursday, uh, what I yeah. meant was, and for the Crushers, it's Friday. But uh, what we're doing, Casey, is we're finishing up our... Um, Kenneth Lonergan uh, tragedy trilogy. Yeah, it really just hit me when I was watching Manchester by the Sea that that's that there is a devastating tragedy sort of at the center of each of these movies. Yes, I made I made a lot of notes with just all the kind of shared themes that mm-hmm. that we see over and over through these three films. And yeah, it's it's really cool that now that we've gotten through all three of them, we can kind of look at the whole body of work and and find all these commonalities because they are sort of like. Very much variations on a theme, these three films. Yeah, and I guess before we really get going, I'll just give you my overall. I never saw this for some reason. I knew it was depressing, and so we didn't see it when it came out, and it was kind of one of those we just kind of kicked down the road enough to where it sure. fell out of our, our view. Yeah. Um, so we, Emily and I both watched it, and I'm going to include some of her comments along the way, but for both of us, it fell a little cold compared to his other ones. Um, I think that's deliberate, yeah. And I think it was, it didn't move me emotionally or her emotionally like something like this normally would, especially mm-hmm. things like the death of children. Right. Um, usually we're like weepy messes. And sure. it just really didn't get me that way. Um, and I think there was a, and maybe it was deliberate, but I think it was, a lot of it had to do with the coldness. Not that he was a cold character, Casey Affleck, but he 
there was no there was not a lot of outward emotion from him through the movie. He's fairly stoic. And right. I think there was just a distance between me connecting emotionally to the movie. I liked it, but I liked this least of his three. Interesting. Yeah. I, I know that this one, the first time I saw it, I saw it in the theater, you know, like opening week probably. And I liked it a lot, but I did, like you, have maybe a little bit more of a subdued reaction to it. Um, it doesn't have that kind of warm, um, maybe a little bit more humanist kind of feel to it. Yeah. There is a slight distance and a slight coolness to it, which I think is thematically appropriate for the character himself, you mm-hmm. know, who has basically kind of given up on life without dying. Yeah. He's just kind of going through the motions. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is even something you see in the cinematography of the film, which this is his first film uh, shot digitally. Oh, interesting. And there's a kind of sterility to the image a lot of the time. Um, and there's a little bit less... Obviously, there's a lot less color because it's winter. It's very gray. It's kind of desaturated in in places. Um, but I I, th- I think something about the, the the cleanness of the image and the lack of grain, and um, and just like the sharpness and the kind of um, I don't know. It's it's a little more like literal of an image and a little bit less kind of like aestheticized or romantic or something. All of that kind of contributes to. Uh, the slightly colder feeling of the film. The whole film kind of feels like the, that opening sequence in the hospital and so on. Uh-huh. Um, everything has that kind of like very just neutral, nothing really pops. Everything's just kind of this um, this uh, dampened color palette. Um, and then, of course, o- over the course of the film, as the seasons change, once it gets to spring, it starts to kind of thaw out. Mm-hmm. He's emotionally thawing a bit and the film, you know, warms up a little bit. But there's still kind of like, um, yeah, I, w- I would say there's more of a distance in this film than the other two. For I, sure. I did find that's interesting. I didn't know it was digital. I did find that I thought this was his best looking of the three movies. Interesting. Um, maybe that had something to do with the, the digital, uh, crispness. Um, and you did know, you, did you stream it on uh, Amazon? I streamed it on Amazon and it also yeah. had a, uh, I, I think just visually, Although there were were there were some pretty shots and you can count on me with the the, the low lying mountains and hills and stuff, but sure. the I think the seaside hamlet and the winter time is just a little more uh, eye candy. Yeah, for uh, sure. And I, and I love that I love a seaside hamlet as a setting. It's like I'm a sucker man. Whether it's Popeye or Manchester by the Sea, like there's something about a little town surrounding a small body of water that just. I think I want to live in these places is what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel the same way. There's just something very, even though it's extremely cold, there's something very warm about it somehow. Yeah. And he, he also does the, um, his usual great job of efficient setup. Um, he's just such a master at setting up a place, a a setting, a place and a time and a character. And that, that beginning sequence with Casey Affleck shoveling that snow and fixing the toilets and doing this handyman work, it's just a few minutes and you're like, I know this guy, I know where he is. We learn later why he is, but yeah. um, really tells you a lot about who this guy is very quickly. And you, you have kind of like that Margaret effect of like, you're seeing these little tiny vignettes into the lives of each person that he's working for, yeah. where you're overhearing their phone conversations or you're just kind of, you're getting this little snippet of this person and you, you kind of understand like whatever problem is happening with their shower, their toilet or the, the light in their, you know, fan or whatever. Yeah. Like this is 
peripheral to the other things they have going on in their life. Um, and so all day long, he's kind of getting this window into the lives of these other people where yeah. he has no life whatsoever himself because anytime anybody even attempts to get close to him he just pushes them away immediately yeah and that happens a couple of times early on he's in the bathroom fixing that one woman's toilet and he he can hear her talking about like i right. got a crush on my handyman and blah 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 yeah. and she's like cute and he comes out yeah. and yeah. i'm like it's on dude like <laughs> go for it exactly and exactly. he doesn't do anything and then in the bar that girl tries to talk to him yep um he also i think there's a little bit of the mark ruffalo you can count on me character in this as far as just this anger within uh, because of mm-hmm. loss, starting random fights. Yep. Uh, the, you know, there's the DNA in all three of these movies. I'm curious where he goes next, to be honest, but sure. I don't think he can keep going down this road. This felt like a trilogy. It does feel like he has to kind of reinvent a little bit after this one, or it's going to start to get a little repetitive, maybe. Does he regard um, it as a trilogy? I don't think he's really talked about it in those, in those terms. I mean, I know when in interviews and so on, when people kind of bring up these common thematic links between the three mm-hmm. he's a little bit like uh, he kind of defers to like well that's just like the stuff of life like if these if these things recur i don't think about them consciously they just kind of emerge out of the stories that i'm telling and the things i'm interested in and the kind of things that Which affect tragedy all of us as loss. human beings <laughs> yeah yeah well but also a lot of humor i mean I, I think this film is interesting i don't know if you Not found as, as much humor, humor in, in it one. But to me, like uh, the dynamic between like Lee and Patrick yeah. is is very funny a lot of the time. No, yeah, that's true. Um, but that's something that I think on a repeat viewing starts to come out more. Um, just just some of the, the the funny little moments between the two of them. Like Lonergan's cameo in this is very funny to me when oh, he's like the guy walking by and they yet. just yeah 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 <laughs> he's the douchebag. Uh, <laughs> yes. Hey, fuck you, buddy. Hey, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, I love that scene. Yeah, he was um, awesome. Um, I mean, we'll round out the cast. The great, great, great Michelle Williams, who is oh yes, doesn't has a, have a huge part in this, but she's just she's one of the best. Uh, Lucas Hedges is Patrick, who is great. He's great uh, too. Yeah, Kyle Chandler in a, a yep pretty small role, but very pivotal. Absolutely. Uh, Gretchen Mull, seeing her pop up. Yeah, I haven't nice. seen her in a long time. She did it's a good great job. to see her on screen again. Yeah, and then of course Broderick. I love seeing him yes. pop up. Yep. Yep. Should we have the Casey yeah. Flat conversation? Yeah, sure. So, you know, he's a great actor. I love him as an actor. I was very disappointed when all that stuff came out uh, about his poor behavior. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I, I sort of like, I, I remembered, obviously I remembered that happening. I remembered, especially it kind of seemed to resurface, especially in the Oscar run-up yeah. in 2016 and so on. That's when I think that stuff kind of, really broke out into mainstream consciousness because I think that stuff had kind of been settled out of court and like kept hush hush uh, around 2010, 2011, whenever there was, whenever that was happening. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's um, I don't know. Like one thing that I had not really been, been consciously aware of is that he and Joaquin Phoenix were very, very close for a long time. Oh yeah. Uh, they That's like lived in the same happened. building in New York. Yeah. Um, uh, Casey Affleck was married Exactly. I was married to, to one of Joaquin Phoenix's sisters. Uh, they have like matching tattoos. And actually, when I was watching the film this time, it's the first time I've noticed this. There's a scene where he's like reclining on a bed and you can see the tattoo on his arm. It's just like this circle thing mm-hmm. that uh, that um, Joaquin and uh, Casey got like matching tattoos in Italy at some point. And um, yeah, then then that marriage ended 
And Joaquin Phoenix, when he was doing press for Joker, um, just just said basically like, yeah, we don't talk anymore. We haven't talked in probably three or four years. Oh, really? That, mar- that marriage ended and, and we're not really in contact anymore. So obviously there's probably a lot more to that story too. And he's definitely like taking his sister's side, obviously. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it was very disappointing. Uh, I am a, per- I don't, you know, we don't have to go down this road fully and have this big talk about cancel culture, but... I believe in forgiveness. I believe in people paying their debts. Uh, He was very, um, very remorseful. He lost everything. (laughs) He lost his wife. He lost his family. Um, You know, he almost came on the show. I don't know if we ever talked about that. but Wow. No, I did not know that. Yeah, there was a chance to have him on the show at one point. And it was sort of when this was going on a little more, not Mm -hmm. in real time, but with the Oscars. Right. And I said, listen, and I was talking to his publicist and I said, I can't watch this under the, the sweep it under the carpet. And I said, I would like to be able to talk to him about it, though, in a way where he has a, an opportunity to speak to it, uh, right. because I, I know he does is very regretful and remorseful. And I do believe that people can be forgiven. And I said, and I wouldn't you know, I, w- I could be an avenue for that. I said, but I would want to talk about it. She came back to me later and said, hey, listen, it's not going to work out. She said, but just so right. you know, it had nothing to do with that. I did talk mm-hmm. to him about that. And he really appreciated your uh, your take on that and would have, would have talked about it with you. Um, she's like, so that's not why we're, we're not able to do it. It's a scheduling thing, but I don't know. I, I just, I hate that it happened. I hope he is. And I think he has cleaned up his act since then because I really, really love him as an actor. He seems to me like a very genuine person and, and very down to earth. I know that can be, that can be very tricky. Um, to kind of feel that from an actor because of course they are actors and if they're really good as he is, mm-hmm. they're very good at, at maybe even uh, presenting themselves as something that they're not, mm-hmm. you know, that can, that can even make somebody more capable of manipulation if they're, if they're yeah. that capable of, you know, just appearing like someone who's got their head on their shoulders and is not like a big Hollywood kind of phony or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I like, like you said, it, it's very, very, sad it's disappointing um everybody makes mistakes right yeah. but but in, in this particular case you know he he talks a lot about like it, it was basically during the shooting of i'm not there right the yeah. documentary with with joaquin phoenix they and both lost their minds that whole, during that whole thing yeah that that whole film had kind of like a sort of drug-fueled like crazy debaucherous yeah um sort of like extreme blurring of the lines and so on and so when he talks about the the incidents he kind of puts it down to like, I really was not fully conscious of the authority that I w- wielded as director yeah. and, and the effect that that has on, from, from the producers and the crew on down mm-hmm. because it was his producer and his cinematographer that were the two that um, filed you know, suits against him. And I, I can kind of see where he's coming from, you know, but at the same time, it's just... It's no excuse. I, it's it's a bummer, yeah. yeah. There's no two ways around it. And it is, it's one of those things where it's like, it just sucks because I love this film. I love him as, as an actor. And it, it's just, um, yeah, it's like a bad note. And it, it's hard to kind of see anything else that he does in quite the same way. And it kind yeah. of complicates the way that we perceive um, his work. So, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not going to stop watching his films. But at the same time, it's just sort of like... Uh, it's just unfortunate, you know? Yeah. So back to the movie. I think we had yeah. to talk about that, you know, we could not. Absolutely. Yeah. Rug. No, no, I'm glad we did. And, um, 
it was it was certainly it was it was front of my mind more watching it this time I think than than any other time I've seen the film. I've seen it probably four or five times now. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things I love was how how honest Lee was. Yeah. Uh, he he was one of these guys that was just unflinchingly honest and um you know he he doesn't there's never a false moment where he's trying to be anything other than what he is which is a devastated wreck of a human <laughs> yeah uh and the only time you see him kind of come to life and those are great scenes those flashbacks a movie that does a lot of flashback but those flashbacks on the boat when his uh when patrick right. is a kid right and his those scenes are just so lovely and real and that's to see him alive is uh is emotionally impactful when compared to the rest of his life in the movie absolutely that that sequence also where he's home with the three kids yeah and oh, and ricky Jesus. you know and and she's like sick in bed and mm-hmm. he's kind of hugging the kids individually and like the first time you see the movie you don't really unless you've you know maybe read it about it ahead of time you, you realize there's going to be some tragedy but yeah i mean just just from the structure the fact that now he's living this life of complete isolation yeah and then there's this flashback and then there's kind of like suddenly there's a whole family there uh-huh and you kind of start to put those pieces together in your head like, oh, no, like what yeah. what happened? Because you've already seen how people react to him anyway. They 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 act as if he's this sort of like mythical figure, like, oh, my God, that's Lee Chandler. Like, yeah, everybody in the town clearly knows what went on. But we as the audience don't know it yet. Yeah. Um, but it, but it just like us. It, um, yeah. We didn't yeah. know. I thought the tragedy was going to be Kyle Chandler's death. Right. Or not going to be. I thought it was while I was watching yeah, it. And yeah. then there were those scenes with the family where we were kind of like, what's going on? Yeah. And um, I just thought that he had gotten divorced. And then right. this legend of Lee Chandler, I thought that he had, uh, it was a pretty good little mystery. I'm glad I didn't look into it beforehand because yeah. I thought that he had done something really bad in the past, like killed somebody in a bar fight or something. Right. And, like right. his family left. And then yeah. when it's the fucking house fire, Oof. Oh my God. And Emily, that's when she got really mad at the movie was she, and she thought that Kenneth uh, Lonergan went too far with bringing out the kid body bags. In terms of like the, the sort of emotional manipulation. Yeah, she was like something. too much. She's like, you should, yeah. he, she's like, I literally think he should not have done that as a filmmaker. It was too far. We get it anyway. You did not need to show the body bags. I could, I could see that. I mean, to me, he's, he's reliving that moment and, I don't know how realistic that is that a parent would actually just still be there hanging around as that's all unfolding because you notice when he walks back, it's like night, which I guess you can assume it's probably maybe four, five in the morning. So the sun's going to be coming up pretty soon, but there's like a transition between the fire at night and then it's sort of like daylight and they're loading Michelle Williams into the Mm -hmm. uh, ambulance on the stretcher Mm -hmm. and all that. And so clearly like some, some time has passed and... I did sort of like the first time watching, I was like, is that really how that would play out? Would they just already kind of like not be there? Would he maybe have gone to the hospital with her rather than stick around while the firefighters are kind of just like combing through the wreckage and, and finding the the three bodies and so on. Um, that, that to me felt maybe slightly unrealistic or something. Um, but but at the same time, like like you were saying, you have that one moment where they're trying to load the stretcher into the ambulance and the legs keep falling down. Yeah, and what was your take on it, that? Was that an accident, a happy accident? It could be, yeah. It could have been something that just happened and they decided to keep it in. But I mean, it is it, it is very much in keeping with um, 
what he does in uh, in, in all of his films yeah, where he undercuts stuff. he undercuts like a dramatic kind of almost maybe melodramatic moment mm-hmm. with just like the messiness of real life yeah, and yeah. and and you know the the kind of clumsiness that undercuts um, some of the seriousness or or at least it just it just shows us that things don't play out in these kind of clean isolated ways that um, um, you know like real life is messy and there's always stuff going on. Yeah, and there's something too. I mean, I, I know why he does these films centered around a tragedy is because it's such a deep well uh, to dip into. Um, I think people, I think humans are maybe as true to their base character as that as during a tragedy than maybe at any other time. Yeah, and it's so, like when you reveal your core, yeah, kind of so being like, you're forced to. He centers yeah. around these tragedies and like it's just such a rich canvas character wise. And he's just, he's all about character, character, character. Yeah. Uh, the writing's good. Cinematography's great. Acting's great. But it's really all about just making these fully formed human beings. And, and he works in such a kind of, um, you could say realist tradition. Yeah. Like his films feel very, very real. There's not a lot of artifice. There's not a lot of, heightened or elevated moments nothing really rings false you know yeah um it's it's sort of like you're you're meant to feel like you're just kind of dropped into somebody's real life and you're and you're watching these scenes um which is interesting in this film because i i will say like with the cinematography he uses i think more wide shots in this film Mm -hmm. than in the others and even in dramatic scenes a lot of time like for instance the scene where Patrick is finding out that his dad died. Yeah. And he just hangs on that wide shot, kind of from the perspective of the other players on the team and the coach. Oh, man. Are watching at a distance. That's great. And you don't hear any of the dialogue between Patrick and Lee, you know, as he's telling him about this. Yeah. Um, Because you can just, I mean, I love that because how how do you write that scene? You know, like it's always going to feel kind of cliched. So you might as well hang back at a distance and then just the audience can fill in those blanks for themselves in a way that feels more true. Yeah. He does that a few times cliche. in his movies to great effect. Yeah. I think I'm a big fan of the, the dialogue free scene that you see people talking from a distance. Yeah. Um, by the way, really quick, Emily's coming in and out in the background. If anyone hears doors opening and shutting, that's what it is. <laughs> I told her, don't yeah. worry about it. Um, but the, uh, that scene too, when the, after he's told Lee leaves and his hockey buddies come over and comfort yeah. him. Yeah. That was a really, great moment too because again i don't think you even heard what they were saying and and you just saw them do what teenagers do like is is just sort of like a a a physical touch of comfort yeah because you don't know what to do at that age they just sort of surrounded him a little bit and hugged him yeah and I, i kept thinking like you know patrick does have this whole network of friends and family around him to give him that support emotionally when this happened Mm mm-hmm and Lee is so much the opposite. Yeah, you know, he's got nobody. He does have some of that family, but it's like he he pushes them all well, away. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't allow, to, you know, it, it, because he doesn't ultimately, want to heal. I mean, he's exactly he doesn't want to heal, and he also, even more than that, he wants to punish himself. You know, I think that's the core of it. Yeah. There's you know that brutal scene where he's in the police station, mm-hmm. and and they tell him like you know he he recounts the story, and then they tell him like 
all right, well, if we have any further questions, we'll be in touch. You know, you're, you're free to go. And he's like, what, yeah. uh, what are you talking about? Like, why aren't like, you arresting me? Basically. Yeah, exactly. He just, he just, they said, we're not going to crucify you. You know, there's, there's no law against like forgetting to put the, the screen on the, on the fireplace. Yeah. You just made a mistake like a million other people. That was tough, but, man. He was, he but was it's just like, you could see it on his face. He even said, so I can go like, yeah, like he doesn't want to No, he wants to go to jail. Yeah, I mean, he wants to die. Like that, it's it's just moments later that he that he takes the gun from from the cop uh, and and tries to blow his head off. That that um, shot was, I mean, that whole sequence was amazing, man. Because yeah. that whole long unbroken shot, it plays out like a confession, basically, right? Of a crime. Right. Yes, and then, that like slow said, push in, yeah. no cuts. Oh god, it was yeah. so good. And then when he when he steals that cop's gun and tries to, I mean, if it would have been a revolver, he would have killed himself. But yeah, it, but it was a, a mag. Uh, I right, don't even know what you call them or whatever. <laughs> yeah, a gun with a clip. So he had to like cock it and get get the yeah. gun in the chamber, and it because he was did just he did get time. a squeeze off, yeah, but it wasn't to. it was there wasn't a bullet in the chamber. Oh yet, man, so. that was just brutal. I mean, this was yeah, this was a fucking tough movie, man. <laughs> but you know that that's a very common um, that's that's real deep shared DNA with Margaret in the sense of like the central tragedy that the characters feel. Like they have a, a large responsibility for, and yet society just kind of lets them keep going on their way. Yeah, and they deal about it. They they deal with it in different ways. You know, Margaret is more, or well, Lisa is more interested in, um, you know, holding the bus driver accountable, maybe uh-huh. getting him off the road. Um, but she also wants to, them to just have that private acknowledgement. Like we both know. Yeah, we we had a large responsibility for this let's just admit that to themselves even if there's no legal consequences yeah. you know lee doesn't have anywhere to go other than to just live this like spartan life where he's you know he's he's breathing but he's not really living he's just kind of like a yeah. shell and like it really hits me uh in the scene where the young patrick and uh uh and, and lee's brother joe mm-hmm. Uh, they they come to visit him in that little one room like bunker that he's living in yeah and and he says to him this is not a room yeah he's where's like, the furniture and he's like i've furniture. got furniture <laughs> he's like this is not furniture this like is a like a folding, folding table. table yeah yeah and just like a bed on you know what on the a mattress on the ground basically yeah um and so then you know and he says like get off my back he even then he doesn't want to you know he just wants to live in like the most discomforting like spartan um ascetic kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. and make his uh, own life. I, I mean if he can't go to jail he's going to put himself in jail essentially right he's going to construct his own prison yep it, like um, not allow and, himself love uh you get yeah. the feeling he doesn't even uh have sex or anything with no, anyone right right and yep. it's just sort of this monastic um yep and you know he 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 the that's the other tragedy he also lost this great big brother yeah. Um, so this is sort of a dual tragedy and another film with uh, a relationship with a um, a nephew and an uncle, um, just like You Can Count on Me. Right, which right. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, both both are, are sort of, you have, um, you know, a, a, a kid who's lost a parent who now has this new kind of surrogate parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but in both cases, the surrogate parent is not quite up to the task you know they try but they can't quite outrun their demons like like casey affleck says in that scene near the end he's just like i can't beat it you know oh dude i've he, got that he, line written down really, here he's really trying but that, that was the line you know, of the movie for me 
Yeah, I don't that's, think that's he is a trying. hard, tough scene. I think he knows what? he can't. Like, I, I don't think he wants to put forth the effort to beat it, and that's what he means by "I can't beat it." Like, I can't even muster the gumption right. to try. A new season of Bridgerton is here, and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. There is like that sequence right right before then where um, this this song comes on the soundtrack, I'm Beginning to See the Light. Mm-hmm. It's by uh, the Ink Spots and, and Ella Fitzgerald. And 
he does start to do like it's it's right when he decides okay we can actually sell these old rifles and get some money and buy a motor for the boat and kind of keep that going you don't have to sell it then he also uh starts looking for like part-time jobs around town Mm because he is actually going to try to stay for a little while um he also like finally lets patrick and his girlfriend have some privacy for Mm -hmm. a couple hours you know whereas they've they've kind of been continually thwarted by like his girlfriend's mom and him and so on so he, you know these these three things in this kind of upbeat song, they're all sort of showing that like okay maybe he is starting to turn a corner like the weather's thawing out, and then he's walking up the stairs he's walking up this hill and he runs into Ricky, and as soon as he runs into her there's like a hard cut of the song, um, you know it's not a fade or anything it's just like a hard stop. Um, Randy, yeah, Randy, yeah. Did I say Ricky? Yeah, Michelle Williams. Yeah, Michelle Williams. I thought it was, for some reason, I thought it was Ricky. Is it Randy? It's Randy. Okay. But yeah, Um, that music stops. Yeah, it's a hard cut. And then I think that, that's sort of the thing that like, had he not run into her, had that like coincidental kind of thing happened, he might have actually continued to sort of like warm up and open up and and sort of like invest in this new life. Yeah, he was inching that way. And then after that, like the very next scene... He goes to the bar, he starts drinking, he starts a bar fight, yeah. he gets the shit kicked out of him. And, you know, from from then on, he's just sort of like, I can't do this, you know? I tried and and I can't do it. And it, it's very, very similar to the kind of self-sabotaging behavior uh, Mark Ruffalo does in, yeah. in You Can Count On Me, where he starts the fight with the the, the biological dad of the kid. Yep. Um, it, it's this thing where they sort of like, like you were saying, maybe it is that he's decided for himself deep down somewhere, I can't do this or I don't want to do this. And they're almost manufacturing a reason so that everyone else will kind of accept that they're not up to it, you know? Yeah, I think he's... Um, I, I think for him to do that and to move on would be to in some way forgive himself for what happened and right. he won't allow that. He yeah. is, uh, like we said, he is built. He is. If they're not going to put him in jail, he's going to build his own life like that, and he won't. You know, I'm, I'm kind of glad they didn't show the ends, the like the specifics of how his marriage ended, um, mm-hmm. because it leaves the audience to kind of just think about like, could she not be around him anymore? Could he not be around her? Or could yeah. they just? Was it just such a constant reminder that they there was just no way for them to continue? Probably all of the above, but you do you do get some idea of it in that in that scene where they're suddenly close to each other and they have to talk and the baby's right there and everything. And um, she says to him, "Like I said some things to you, I ought to go to hell for what I said to you." Yeah. So I, I get the impression that she put the blame entirely on him, yep, unloaded on him, as in like you killed our children, you ruined our lives, yeah, you yeah, know whatever yeah. she might have said. Um, that that I think, and and the way she wants to, she wants to forgive him, or she, or she has forgiven him, but he wants, or she wants him to forgive himself. Yeah, and and he says to her like, um, "There's nothing there," you know. That that I love that scene because yeah, if you if you really break it down line by line, they're almost not saying anything. Like there's no finished thoughts really. Mm-hmm. There's just these little fragments, and they're and they're kind of like grasping at words, and they can't really fully articulate. Michelle Williams even says at the beginning, she's like, I I don't have anything big to say. Yeah. You know, and she, she has that line, um, could we have lunch sometime? Which that line kills me because yeah. she's just saying like, could we, 
could we move past this because I still love you and I still care about you? I think they love each other still. It's one of those things like when it showed the flashback, they were a couple very much in love. And I think that's a, that's a, a very purposeful thing is to, to unequivocally be like, they were doing great until right. this happened. I mean, there was, yeah. she was kind of mad at him about having the party and stuff, but yeah. you didn't get the feeling that he was some shit husband and that they didn't have a good relationship because of that great scene when he climbs on her in the bed and they're yeah, kind of yeah. goofing around. Like yeah. for a marriage to end because of tragedy, when you still love each other is, and I've seen this in a couple of movies, it's really, really hard. Um, and you know, of it's course, brutal, as, a, yeah. as a parent, like Emily and I see this stuff and we're just like, how do you, how do you go on? How do you yeah. go on? Yeah. You got to break up and just forget about each other almost. Well, there's, there's that line in, in, uh, in Margaret where, um, they're talking about, um, the, the woman, I, I can't even remember her name, the woman who gets killed in, in Margaret. Yeah. Allison Jane. Um, yeah. Where, uh, I think Lisa says, you know, how did she bear it losing a child? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, first of all, she couldn't, you know? Yeah. And second of all, she, she sort of like, forced yourself to 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 move on anyway but it's like you never are okay with it yeah you're you're going to be sad about it your heart's going to be broken the rest of your life you know um and you just have to either learn to deal with that somehow or if you're if you're lee chandler you just suppress it all and when he says there's nothing there he's really trying to say like i've just closed off my emotions Mm -hmm. i i've not handled it you know i've not dealt with it I've just decided to pretend that I'm kind of like a robot or something. You wonder why and, he hasn't uh, killed himself yet. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I, I don't know. It is, you do kind of wonder that because like, who is he living for? There's, there's nobody, there's nothing. I mean, it's not maybe like he Patrick has a little bit, but they were sort sure, of estranged. Sure. Yeah. They hadn't seen each other in a while. Or his and brother, definitely, like, you know, the, the his right. brother's death is what brings him back together. Yeah, I guess. And his brother, I think, naming him as the the guardian yeah. in the will without even having talked to Lee about it, because Lee says like he never scene. talked about it with me because he knows yeah. I'm going to say no. Yeah. So and that's true. It's like that's <laughs> that's like his brother's final act is to force him into this kind of surrogate parent role to try and save as him. as exactly to try to save his brother to try to yeah. kind of give him uh, a, a life and give him some structure and give him something to kind of grow and 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 evolve as a person and um that that's something too that that um is very common like it's 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 shared dna with you can count on me where it's not that they don't change at all Mm -hmm. but they don't do a full 180 they they change like 10 percent, you know yeah which is real life instead of the movie thing where they're like yeah all the all of a sudden at the end of the hollywood version lee chandler is has found a new exactly. love and he's fucking right. La La Land dancing in the streets. He's he's yeah he's probably um you know dating the the mom of of Patrick's girlfriend maybe yeah uh, the the single mom yeah that, he finds that, you true know. love with her that's exactly what right. the fuck would happen and and that's you know and and he has this new life in the small town and you know maybe he 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 finds a way to be friends with Michelle Williams again and yeah yeah you can you can you can totally see where that where that movie would go but. Um, that's not for life, someone though, to have been through such such tragedy, and and the ways that people deal with it, um, yeah, it would it would kind of ring false, and it 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 would, it would certainly like that would be even more um, manipulative than than what we end up with, you know, given the severity of what happens and everything, like for it to just all turn around and almost be like a rom com or something, I that know. would be a real tonal like mismatch. So yeah, that's what I think in a way. Do, <laughs> yeah and, and the, the, I, I the, love that Lonergan doesn't do that you know he's he's all about reality in real life 
Um, yeah, he he resists the kind of um, yeah. I, I was listening to to this lecture he gave um, in in London on screenwriting, and you know, at one point uh, there was a question from from the moderator like, "What do you think about screenwriting classes?" And he's like, "I don't know what three act structure is." You know, I I see people you know trying to force their scripts into these like preconceived notions of you have to establish the character by 10 pages there has to be a complete turnaround by the end there needs to be a reversal all this kind of stuff uh and he's like you know ultimately you're just trying to authentically communicate a character Mm -hmm. and he, he feels like when when something rings false in a movie oftentimes it's because the screenwriter is kind of working from the outside in mm-hmm. like they are they're starting off with what they think an audience may want to see like or what's going to work this commercially is to happen exactly yeah. and it's not something that arises organically from the reality of that situation it's mm-hmm. something that's imposed from the outside and so uh, when when a line rings false maybe it's because the character wouldn't actually talk like that they're talking more like a screenwriter you yeah. know or they're talking like what is necessary for them to say in this situation so that, you know, all, all the mechanics of the screenplay work out in a certain way. Yeah. Um, but to, to him, like the, the key to good art is to just, you know, trust the character, trust that the reality of your own lived experience. Mm -hmm. And rather than think, um, what would this character say in, in this kind of fictional heightened way? It's like, what would I say? What would, from from the life that I've lived and the experiences that, mm-hmm. that I've had, how would this situation really play out? Yeah. As opposed to this kind of artificial thing. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to have to check that lecture out. Um, the other thing I, I love is how he doled out, uh, and kind of how he always doles out the backstory. There's a yeah. lot of times a mystery going on, but it doesn't feel like a mystery. Um, right. And we already talked about sort of the tragedy of the fire, but uh, Gretchen Mall and the mom. Like the whole yeah. time, Emily was like, where is she? Where is she? Where yeah. is she? Yep. And then we learned that she had a drinking problem. And again, it's not, you don't flash back to that and he doesn't spell it out in exact terms, but you get the gist of what happened. And now she has this new life as, uh, I mean, is she a born again, I guess, or? Yes. I think, I think that's the implication. Yeah. Like when, uh, when Patrick said afterward, afterwards, like, she was very Christian, you know, yeah. or, or the, the, the man was very, you know, Matthew Broderick was yeah. very Christian. Um, and then, you know, Lee's sort of like, you know, we're Christian too, like Catholics are Christians, but they had this different tradition, like yeah, one Catholic on the one side uh-huh. and then, you know, probably Protestant something on the other. And, um, yeah, just the, obviously like the, it, it's not really touched on that much in the film, but Catholicism in general, like the, the presence of guilt mm-hmm. in, in that particular oh, sure. um, tradition, you know, is, is very heavy. So it's like, I think that plays into it too, that, that Lee sort of um, doesn't necessarily believe in, in the idea of redemption. You know, he just believes in this, like carrying this guilt and like, you're a bad person and you'll always be a bad person and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh it was great to see Broderick, like I said, in that scene where he gets the email basically saying like, you got to come through me if you want to see your yeah. mom again. And, and yep. it was, it was clear once Patrick was there, like he didn't want to be there. That's a painful scene because yeah. they, they keep having these miscues and false steps and there's no rapport. Mm-hmm. And you know, when, when Matthew Broderick says to him, um, you know, your job is to, to just to be relaxed and be at home. 
And, uh, and Patrick says to him like, all right, well, I'm really going to apply myself. And then Broderick doesn't really see the humor in that. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, no, no. I I was just joking. And then Patrick's like, well, yeah, I was too. But they just keep kind of stepping on each other's lines and it's a real masterclass and like just things not clicking, you know? Yeah. And again, that's very realistic because what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to meet your mom who you haven't seen since you're probably a child. Yeah. And she's become this completely different person. And there's this other kind of weird guy hanging around and you're trying to do this forced like family dinner. Um, and everything is they're They're all being so polite and they're all being so fake, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just really, really sad to, um, to see that they, they don't have that real moment. You know, there's, there's no like connection there. They're just kind of, um, they, everybody wants to connect, but they're, but they're not really doing what they need to to have that happen. Yeah, and that kid, man, Lucas Hedges is great. Um, yes. I haven't seen, I saw Lady Bird, of course. I have not seen Boy Erased, which I really want to see. But, um, or Ben is back. But he is, yeah. he is really good. And I think not not a household name, but no. he's got the a face that a lot of people are probably like, wait, I've seen that kid in something. But he's yeah. really good. You get some great, um, acting and some great accents. I love that 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 Boston accent when when yes. he and his friends are sitting around after the wake. Yeah, and they're talking and about, they're talking their about dad Star Trek and the shock jokes. He really liked those yeah. shock jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's he's great. I feel like this is um, this is the kind of role that like Jesse Eisenberg would have been great for. Like you know, a few years earlier, when yeah. he was a little bit younger. And I, I think uh, Lucas Hedges has a similar kind of like he's very good at at playing intelligence and and mm-hmm. playing sort of just like. Um, being being like a reasonable, well-adjusted kind of kid, like a precocious yeah. kid. Um, there's there's so many scenes where um, Lucas Hedges is like the adult in the situation between the two of them. Mm-hmm. You know, Lee is behaving like a child, like a petulant kind of petty, um, just like a jerk. You know, he's being being a dick for no reason. Yeah, and uh, and it's always like uh, Patrick who has to kind of like be be the grown up in the situation you know one one example of that is when um patrick says to uh their friend like oh do you want to become his guardian or whatever yeah they're they're standing on the boat he's like you want to be his guardian and it really puts him on the spot and where he's like look we 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 love this kid we he he's got a, a bed anytime he wants to stay at our house but like i've got four kids i'm trying to lose kids that at this point i'm not tough, trying to take man. more on that was really hard and it puts him in such a, a hard place where he because he you know, was like, he, no, 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 like, no, you shouldn't feel bad about not wanting. Like, right, exactly. Like he was yeah, the Lucas one that like, was he's being like, reasonable. No, 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 you're, yeah, exactly. Lucas is like, no, 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 you're great. Like, I, yeah. I, I understand this is very unfair what he's saying to you. And then that afterwards. so well played. When it's just the two of them, he's sort of like, what is wrong with you? You know, like, know. You, you can't talk to people that way. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love that it's like the 16-year-old teaching the probably, what, 30, 40 something how to be an adult. And, and something yeah. similar happens and you can count on me. Um, there, there's always this kind of like, uh, shift and reversal uh-huh. at times between who's quote unquote, the grown up and yeah. who's the, the child, yeah, you know, that's and they both play with as a writer, they both have something to kind of offer each other. But yeah. Um, one of my favorite shots in the movie, jumping back to the hockey scene was, uh, I kind of forgot about it, but when, um, he's consoled and stuff and then he goes to leave and hockey practice practice continues. And it's that great wide shot of him at the edge of the rink skating very slowly this way. And then that whole rush of the whole team skating really fast in the opposite way. Yeah. And yeah. it was just, it was visually a striking shot. And it was also just so like, uh, and you know, I don't want to get too 
too wacky into like symbolism of shots, but you know, him by himself going in one direction and everyone that he loves on that team going fast in the complete opposite direction. Right. It's just one of those great shots that that you love to see in movies like this. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a, 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 again, a Margaret sort of thing of like life goes on, you know, Um, his two friends are obviously going to be very affected by it, but everybody else on the team who's maybe not as close to him are just sort of like, no, that was messed up. And then they're kind of back at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And life just goes on. A new season of Bridgerton is here and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
Um, we got to talk about the music too, because the uh, once again, to great effect, he goes with uh, exclusively uh, classical score. Yeah. Um, and he, he, I love that he goes for it. He doesn't like get someone to compose something new that sounds like good and sad. He like, right. he uses these iconic pieces yeah. from classical music history and yep. uh, is just not shy about like, well, you know what? I'm going to stick. Uh, I can't remember the one piece during the, the fire scene though. Uh, right. Very, right. very famous piece. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to use that. Like he's not going to be shy about using these great scores. Yeah. It's very, it's very bold. It's very confident. I know for, for some critics, some viewers, like uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, a critic I like quite a bit, who loved Margaret and, mm-hmm. and had a lot more trouble with this film. Um, one of his, really, I think his central complaint was the way music is used. Um, because I think, I think the use of music in this film is a little bit more direct and overbearing mm-hmm. in a way that it's not so much in in the previous two films yeah i mean it's it hits and you I, hard on purpose it's 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 part of i mean i think it's part of what he's doing with this film because like i said earlier like this is a very naturalistic film like his other films but at the same time there's a little bit more of a distance there's a little bit more of a sense of a frame of the camera being back from where the actors are mm-hmm. where we're always at a little bit of a remove and that's coming from the character of lee as well but the music gives it this framing as like it's not just the story of this one guy's life it's like a a tragedy you know capital t tragedy like in drama that we've seen for hundreds of years kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and so it, it in a way it's 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 elevating the story above just a slice of life into this kind of like you know grand tragic dramatic story yeah and and he does just go for it he embraces that rather than you know, not use a score. I mean, I, I think it would be very interesting to see this film um, without, you know, without that music in it, um, without much of a score, how how differently that might play. Um, but I do like it. I mean, it for me, it's not a problem. I, I think it I think it totally works in that kind of interesting mashup of styles of the naturalism, but at the same time, the kind of heightened um, score and drama. Um, yeah. Makes for an interesting kind of mix. Yeah, I mean, if you're, it's almost like, like you said, you got to have the confidence to do it and know that, um, hey, it's almost like a film student move to put Barber's yeah. Adagio. Exactly, for exactly. Uh, yes. And he's like, yeah, fuck it though. It's like, it's one of the best. <laughs> if it works, it works, right? I yeah, mean, if it, it does. Like, you, and, and you certainly have the situation merits it. it. You know? Oh, absolutely. It's not like uh, it's not like something trivial happened and then here comes Adagio for strings. It's like one of the worst possible things you could imagine yeah. in the whole world happens. And, and it, it like it, the, the situation, the, the gravity of it, um, certainly, um, merit that kind of, that kind of music, if that's the direction that the filmmaker wants to go in. So, yeah. And he was just, he was so stoic. Um, it was such a catharsis for the viewer. I think when, after that other bar fight, when he finally breaks down, yeah, because he didn't even, I mean, there weren't even shots of him sitting around crying by himself in the middle of the night. It was just stoicism. It was just, yeah. he was just dead inside. And that scene, that first scene with Michelle Williams, there's just nothing in there, man. He's just an empty shell of a human like being. You, and that's hard what, to watch. Like you want, you're just, you're waiting for him to be sad almost. Yeah. And let you it mean out. When, when, they're, when they're talking on the phone or like when she calls him and they haven't talked in a long time or... Well, yeah, that and I think even when they meet in person that first time. Yeah. Oh, like at the at the service? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think in that scene, I do kind of pick up that he's definitely like bracing himself for it. And his friends kind of right there next to him, kind of like giving him a pat on the back, like, it's all right, man. Like, I know you're dealing with a lot here. You're at your brother's funeral and you've got this other element on top of it mm-hmm. that you're seeing your ex-wife with her new husband who's pregnant with a new child yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. But he does manage to kind of just like push that down and hold it in. Um, and it's re- there's a really nice subtle moment where Michelle Williams turns away from him after they've hugged and she kind of wipes away a tear. Yeah. And she's she's very out of focus, but you can kind of tell her mm-hmm. her face is like a little bit crumpled up and and like it was it was really hard for her whereas he's it's hard for him too but he's just kind of bare knuckling it like he's he's you know he's just holding on keeping it as uh wound up inside of himself as he can and he doesn't really crack yeah he starts he definitely starts to crack when they when they run into each other with the the stroller that scene i mean he's definitely like it's it's coming up big time there Mm -hmm. and again he's just like i have to go i have to leave i have to get out of here you know because he is starting to have those feelings and that's, you know, it, it leads to kind of him uh, drinking again and so on. Yeah. We're a big Michelle Williams household. Uh, yes. Kind of feel like she can do no wrong as an actor. And, you know, she's someone who's gone through a great tragedy in her own life. And that's right. I mean, she was a great actor before that, but when you can draw on that, well, um, yeah. from your real life, it's gotta, it's gotta help a little bit. Um, I remember Absolutely. when I met uh, and interviewed busy Phillips, at the sketch fest, uh, we were all hanging out and stuff. I was just like, I was like, I got to ask. I was like, I love that you guys are like best friends. And when you show up holding hands on the red carpets and I said, it just, I think it warms our household's heart. And I was like, you know, is she amazing? (laughs) She was like, of course. She's like, she's my best friend for a reason. And yeah, yeah, she's just great. I mean, there's not a role she's ever played that uh, I haven't absolutely loved. It's so funny to me because when, you know, at the time I was growing up, my first Dawson's. encounter with her was Dawson's <laughs> Creek. Exactly. Yeah, boy. And, uh, Who knew? you know, there was, there was, there was, there was a sort of debate like among, you know, teenage boys or whatever, like, who do you like better? Do you like Joey or do you like Katie Holmes? Uh, what was her? Yeah. Well, Katie Holmes was Joey and I'm trying to remember Michelle Williams. character. Oh, yeah. I didn't uh, watch it really, but. But I was definitely like a Michelle Williams kid. Oh, really? And, Not um, Katie Holmes? Yeah. yeah and it, it's just, no. <laughs> well, and it's look just, how that um, turned out. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, Katie Holmes just, is uh, fine. I've liked her. I've liked her quite a bit in a few movies. Pieces of April was great. Um, she's great in uh, like the Ice Storm. Yeah, um, she was awesome. But I, she's yeah. she, she's not as far as caliber. The two, of acting, the two careers trajectory wise, like Michelle yeah, Williams she's just, is, is she's not as certainly good as Michelle Williams. like. Yeah, she's Michelle Williams definitely picked the more interesting projects and yeah. and um yeah I mean I, I definitely like a, a Michelle Williams film is like more of an event to me than a Katie Holmes film. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and say it, Casey. Tom Cruise ruined Katie Holmes. <laughs> yeah there's there's that that's, that's, that's when it all started uh, sad yeah that was that was the downfall uh but yeah when he finally i think what i was starting to say is when he finally breaks down after that other bar fight that was such a catharsis for the viewer because you just wanted something other than this stoic empty dead shell of a human to yeah. come out and you finally get it and it's weirdly rewarding to sure. see him breaking down finally and that's when, you know, when, like when he says he can't beat it, that line, man, just seared me. Yeah. Yeah. The whole film is kind of building to that moment. Yeah. And it, it's just, you know, it's, it's just a few words, but it, it packs so much power. You know, the way he says it, it's just, it's so honest. It's so real. Four words. And like, that's like the yeah. power of screenwriting. Um, I know. Amazing. He, he had never even like the whole movie. I was 
waiting for him to even acknowledge why he can't be there. Right. And he never even says like to Patrick, like, you know, I can't be here. It's too painful to be reminded yeah. just by being here. He just, he lives it. Um, yeah. And just the lawyer says forward. it to him when yeah. they're, when they're reading the will and he's got that, that flashback going on uh-huh. and he's like, look, we, we all are aware of the huge tragedy you've, you've experienced and we understand and so on. But he's really trying to talk him into like, look, you've, it's time to like move on and, you know, stay here and take, take this responsibility on. Yeah. But, that was Josh yeah. Hamilton, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Another couple so, so of good Patrick, cameos, Tate Donovan and Josh Hamilton. Yeah, like two actors yeah. I really like a lot. It's fun, always fun to see yeah. them turn up. Um, I guess we could we could talk a little bit about the overall usage of flashbacks in this film because I think that's very interesting too. The way it's done, it can be a little way, hard to follow. Yes, yeah, not, well, not confusing, deliberately but so. I think you got to be on your game. A little, you got to be paying attention. Yeah, I mean, it really, really rewards uh, paying extra attention because a lot of times it's just subtle context clues. Um, that that tell you where you are in the story. Yeah. Um, usually it's like the presence of his brother. You know, he's still alive. So right. that's obviously a, a flashback. Or Patrick is the younger version. Right. Sure. Those are or, easy. Or, you know, obviously like the the happy scene with Michelle Williams and the family, mm-hmm. things like that. But then there, there are also more kind of abstract, fragmentary ones where like there's one, I think it might be the first one in the whole film where he's driving down the road to go i think see patrick or maybe he's driving to go uh to the hospital uh-huh. to check on his brother but there's a quick cutaway of 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 casey affleck just like sitting on a boat in a t-shirt it's clearly like summertime mm-hmm. and and he's just kind of looking out at the water and he looks very like happy and peaceful yeah and then it cuts right back to that shot of him driving the car and it's the winter and everything um all the all the flashbacks like there's never a transition there's yeah. never any kind of like dissolve or you know it it just happens as if it were the next sequence in the film. And uh-huh. it's almost always motivated. It, it's like the thoughts are kind of triggered there. We're seeing the interior state of like Patrick's mind. Right. And, and um, the way that's, the way that's done is, is very much, I think influenced by uh, this French filmmaker, Alan Rene, mm-hmm. who made this trilogy of films in the fifties and sixties, Hiroshima Monomore last year at Marianne Bad and uh, Muriel, where, there are all these like fragmented flashbacks that come in. And again, they're not explained. They're yeah. always kind of ambiguous. You're not sure where you are in the chronology. It's very disorienting, but it kind of, it gets at something very true to the character, very true to the way that we experience life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, similar to like the limey as well, where there's, there's not this kind of like handholding of the viewer. It's the way the person would think about it. So there's never any introduction. There's never any kind of setup. Mm-hmm. It's just the thing isolated by itself. And we as the audience have to be paying super close attention yeah. to to pick up on all those details. Yeah, yeah there's not even uh, that the, the tropey sort of gazing into the distance. And, right. and now here comes a memory, everybody. Exactly. Uh, it's just, yeah, Lonergan really, really subverts so many rules of filmmaking uh, and so many tropes while also playing in that same sandbox. Like when you were saying earlier about like the whole three X structure and blah, 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 his movies kind of end up falling into that three X structure. Right. But it just feels more organic. It doesn't feel like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm at page 30. Like I need to have that plot point wedged in here. Uh, and again, with like we've mentioned before, his characters um, very realistically changing by degrees instead of like, uh, this, this a huge like 180 yeah that's just yeah so many times it's not how life works and you know that's 
for better or for worse, that's how we've been conditioned to like story and to appreciate story. I think people want to see yeah. that big transformation. And if right. you're watching this movie and you're into that, you may really want to see Casey Affleck fall in love with Patrick's girlfriend's mom or rekindle with Michelle Williams. Uh, it's that's just not life though, man. That rarely happens that way. I mean, it's, it's the reason I think we go to film sometimes is to see something that is maybe more optimistic than sure. real life yeah, or, yeah. or more, you know, it's, it's cathartic. It's kind of uh, escapist. Um, there, there are definitely people that, that go to films basically um, for a window into a world that is like uh, different than, than what we experience day to day. And and sometimes people will say like, look, I live real life 24 hours mm-hmm. a day. Why would I need to go sit in a theater and watch this movie and just, experience the same lack of satis- satisfaction and <laughs> catharsis and i'm like that you know, too and, but and just, i think you are too some but we we also like this like oh yeah there I, needs to for be me, kenneth like, lonergan out there yeah for me like um it's it's i think it's easier for me to accept a film like this that has that more kind of down to earth like yeah people are going to change five or ten percent but they're not going to just completely transform overnight um there are there are exceptions there are films where you know, somebody just completely transforms in like 90 minutes and, mm-hmm. and you do buy it and it, it's, you're moved to tears by, you know, uh, the, this, 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 uh, transformation that happens and you kind of believe it. It's hard um, to do though. But it's so hard to do. It's so rare that that actually feels satisfying and not like false in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Like I imagine Casey with a lot of Hollywood movies, the three words you say in your head over and over are, Oh, come on. yeah yeah it's well because like it can be in a way like if 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 you're like me that can even be more depressing when you're watching a film and things work out in a way they never would in real life and you're just like man like that you know yeah 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 and it's kind of cruel because you're you're thinking like this is like an impossible standard to live up to yeah um you know romantic films are like that a lot of times where things just fall into place and they and Uh everything works out great and it's you know the cliche happily ever after um there is no such thing like life continues and and more problems arise mm-hmm. and like nobody lives happily ever after forever like somebody's going to die something's going to happen so um for me like in in a in a kind of um counterintuitive way i find these films like L- the lonergan films more kind of optimistic almost or life affirming because they address mm-hmm. what we all experience day to day and they show us that um I don't know. They they just give us a a a a, a frame or a window into that mm-hmm. to put some kind of structure around it and to understand it in some way, um, and yeah, and to just to just understand that the problems in our lives are are common and shared by everybody. It's like it's like this unifying thing. You know, it's it's like when you read a novel from like the 19th century mm-hmm. and these characters are having these problems and you kind of relate to their problems, and you realize like wow, like. 200 years ago, people were feeling the same thing that I'm feeling now about their relationships or about their work or whatever it is. And there's something very comforting in that, that there's this kind of like shared human experience across the, the ages, you know? And to me, that's more, uh, in a weird way, that's more like uplifting than just kind of like this unrealistic manufactured happy thing that life can never measure up to. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I love these movies from him. Uh, I've, you know, it's hard. It's hard to go from a movie like this to like Garden State. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. uh, like yeah. it's sort of. I know that movie gets dunked on a lot, but it's that movie is the embodiment of of all that stuff. 
it's like wish fulfillment, right? Yeah. It's like, and I get it. You're, you know. you're, you're this kind of quiet, uh-huh. reserved guy <laughs> and you meet the quiet reserved girl and she's yes. into cool music she and does. everything just kind of Casey, share the fall. headphones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'm really curious where Lonergan goes next. I don't know if you have any Intel on that. I just sort of lazily looked at IMDb to see if he had anything in development and he did not. Uh, I know he's the doing only, some TV. the only new thing. Yeah. The only, the only new thing that I've seen from him and it's not like a new thing, but during, during the pandemic, there was like a charity table read over Zoom. Oh, and that of was one going of his on plays. the pandemic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it was it was it. like a right. Yeah, exactly. Before that was all over. Yeah, with. just kidding. Um, <laughs> but you know, during during like the initial yeah, month yeah. or two of lockdown, where it was really like bat so down the what hatches. What did he do? A table so read. He didn't do it, but but like a, a just kind of like a theater company of some actors did a table read of one of his plays that i know he has said at some point he wants to maybe adapt into a film oh, cool but hasn't done so yet um, who dies in that one i don't <laughs> yeah i don't i don't really i i'd only watch the first few minutes of it because i don't know if you've watched any of these zoom table reads but i find them like unwatchable uh you like, know even, i watched the fast times thing that was kind of fun I, I watched like a few minutes i watched like a super cut of just shia labeouf's moments in that yeah they're they're, um, they're not great for sure no, because I mean, it's it's the latency between the Zoom and just like not being in the same space with each other. Well, they feel me, like, like auditions it, and auditions are the worst. Yeah, they just fall flat. Like yeah. some people invest in them. But a lot of times, even when it's like good actors, it does feel like they're just kind of like, let me read it doing doing the lines. Yeah. yeah. So it's to I'm, me, I'm not into it. But so I tried to watch this uh, this table read of the Lonergan thing and, you know, five or 10 minutes went by and I just wasn't feeling anything. So I movie. kind of tuned it out. Yeah, exactly. I'd love to see him bite off a uh, short series, a, a limited yeah. series show, where he could he really be, sink I mean, his that, teeth into it. To do like a you know a, a, a six part series or something mm-hmm. could be really really interesting to go even deeper with that that character and the subtlety and the amount of detail mm-hmm. and so on. That could be a great fit for him. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, what else you got for me, Casey? So one one thing that I noticed that he does in this film as well as in Margaret the kind of central tragedy in Margaret, it's the bus accident and this film, obviously the house fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that he walks through it step by step yeah. when he's in the police station, mm-hmm. every single detail, you can tell he's worked over it. Uh, Lee has, has just gone over this a million times in his mind mm-hmm. already when it's just like the same day, but the progression from we're having this party, you know, we're drinking, we're smoking pot, we're doing some Coke. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, uh, Michelle Williams comes downstairs around 2 a.m. is like, look, my kids are trying to sleep upstairs. You're here keeping me awake. You're a grown man. What are you doing? Break this up. Go home, you know? And Lee's just kind of being a dick and eventually she does kick everybody out and he's he's even kind of being like uh, kind of an asshole when they're, when they're pulling off and he's telling them to look for like Jupiter and the North Star and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, you know, again, he's, he's being kind of loud like his kids can probably hear him and so on. So then, you know, the next step is Okay, he's he's done the coke, so he's still kind of like hyped up on that. He yeah. can't sleep yet. So because he can't sleep, he's sitting there watching TV. But then he decides he wants a beer. But they've drank all the beer, right. so now it's he's got to go to the store. So he goes upstairs to check on his kids before he leaves, and he discovers that it's really really cold upstairs. Mm-hmm. So that's why he puts another couple logs on the fire. He did it out of like being conscious of yeah. and caring about his kids, being a good dad. Yeah. So and even and remembers he doesn't, that he forgot the screen and decided yeah. that it would probably be okay and that he's too far to go back. 
before yeah before he even gets to that point he doesn't turn on the central heating yeah. because that dries out Michelle Williams sinuses and gives her a headache so it's like a double consideration mm. for out of consideration for his whole family that's why he puts these two logs on the fire then like you said he he makes a responsible decision he's not going to drive to the liquor store yeah. he's going to walk there it's he's, about a 20 minute walk each way all the right things while he's on blows he's to trying get to more do, beer yeah 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 <laughs> exactly he's trying to do everything right while he's in pursuit of like doing everything wrong kind of um so he yeah like you said he walks there he even has that moment where he's like did i put a screen on the fireplace did i not and he's he's already 10 minutes down the path so it's going to be like another 10 minutes to get there it's gonna it's gonna throw the whole thing off if he goes back so he he just figures like well it's probably okay and then he just continues on you know and so like it's like if if any of those things have been different like if they hadn't done coke then maybe he could have just gone to sleep or if there was two more beers in the fridge Right. If there's a couple more beers in the fridge or if, you know, the party had gone on to like three, four in the morning instead, mm-hmm. or if he hadn't had the party at all, or if, you know, Michelle Williams didn't have the problem with her sinuses and he could have just turned on the what central What you're doing heat. is what he did for all those years afterward. And yeah. What any yeah. Character but does is go over it and over it and over it in their head. And it's the same way in Margaret. There's like, there's like so many things that had to go wrong for that accident to happen. Yeah. And it's, it's less commented on there, but we see them if, if we're observing how the accident right. unfolds. And it's the kind of thing that could just drive a person insane, knowing oh, sure. that this thing that like changed their life forever, kind of ruined their life, like everything had to go wrong. If like just one or two things had gone differently, it'd be fine. Like he, it wouldn't be a memory. His family would still be there. Like his life would have been completely different, but it's just this like, you know, unluck, un- unlucky thing, you know, and, yeah. and yet uh, a-, a whole life can hinge on something like that. But at the same time, like had he really been doing what he should have been doing, which is maybe not, you know, partying and doing coke mm-hmm. and staying up till two, three in the morning when he already has a family and so on. If he had kind of been living his life in a more kind of adult grown up way, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't have happened either. So it's like while while it is like this this kind of uh, unlucky thing that happened, it also comes from a deeper place of like he was kind of a, you know, like an immature guy at that point. Yeah. Because you can beat yourself up about all the little details that happen post-party, but it really comes down to that party. It's the core of it, yeah. That's it's the like, core why it was all. there a party to begin with? And yeah. it, I really loved in that scene how honest he was, um, because that would be the time to make up a lie to try and... Because uh, if he did think he might get in trouble. But the yeah. fact that he admitted to the cocaine early on was, yep. it was a very key moment. Um, it was not a little throwaway line. It was very key that says this character is being as truthful as he can be about this. Cause I think he wants to stack the deck against himself. Yeah. Right. Right. He could leave out the part about the drugs because maybe that opens him up to like negligence, negligence or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good point. But he's just like, look, we had beer, weed and Coke. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the, the copy even says like, Oh, okay. There's, there's cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're not, they're not interested in pursuing that. Um, but yeah, he like like I said, he he's making he's painting as like honest and complete a picture of the whole thing subconsciously or consciously because I think he wants to just put it all out there and hope that he's going to get in trouble for it. You yeah. know, he wants to be held responsible for this. Yeah, man, it was it was you know it was good. It was great. <laughs> it, it, it was like I said, I think third on my list out of these three. It yeah. also might have had something to do with when we watched it, sort of right before uh, we watched it Monday before Election Day. Oh, sure. Uh, so, you know, just 
how it may not have been the best mind space yeah. um, for connecting to a character, but uh, it, it was amazing, man. Like I, I love these movies so much. Uh, and I can't believe that I had only seen you can count on me until we started yeah. this series. Um, I'm not sure how those got by me. Well, I know Manchester by the sea. I just avoided it cause it was a downer, but you know, I had not even heard of Margaret. So, uh, I really, I really get why you love Lonergan so much and I'm right there with you. He's one of the greats yeah. and I think very under, undersung. I mean, Manchester got some Oscar consideration, but that one, yeah, I mean, that one, Finally, I think Casey Affleck won the Best Actor Oscar, right? Yeah. It was nominated for Best Picture. I don't think it won. No, no. Um, he might have had yeah, a it definitely, screenplay like, nod. It, it was definitely a big part of the whole, you know, award season conversation yeah. in a way that his other films flew way more under the radar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's next, dude? Hmm. I, I, think it's, I think it's definitely time to switch it up. Um, Maybe something darker? yeah uh there's a there's a french filmmaker claire denis have you heard of her uh yes how do i know her i'm not sure well she had a she had a film out a couple years ago um that was her first english english language film called high life um that you might have heard about at the time i have heard of that by the way lonergan won best screenplay actually oh that's great certainly deserved um i've heard of high life but the, how do i know that but but oh, but the yeah, film yeah. of of yeah but the film of hers that that i i'm interested in doing for the show is called beau travail which means good work in in french okay and um it i i've wanted to do this like for as long as we've been been doing these conversations and the reason i haven't is that up until very very recently it was it was basically like unavailable to stream or unavailable even to rent on dvd or whatever because the DVD was like long out of print. Mm-hmm. And now finally it's had this like nice restoration. There's a Blu-ray out from Criterion. And I think you can maybe stream it on the Criterion Which channel. Which one is I'm this? Sure. I'm looking at her list. Bo Trevi. Okay. E-E-A-U from uh, 99. From 99. Oh, yeah. She did Chocolat? A different Chocolat. Oh, okay. <laughs> not, not the one, not the Miramax one. Gotcha. Um, although she has worked with Juliette Binoche uh, in a couple of her films now. Well, of course, if she's a French filmmaker. Yeah, you have yeah. To. But um yeah, I, I don't want to say too much about Butcher other than it's very very different from the realist tradition that we have been in for the last 3 films. Okay. It's it's far more um I would say aestheticized, heightened. Um it is a loose adaptation of uh Herman Melville. Um but it but it is very much its own thing. It's it's set in kind of contemporary uh world. Um well, Let's do it. Yeah, it's it's one of the most like beautifully filmed. Um she she just has this character as a filmmaker, she's incredibly intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um she does so much without dialogue, just with the the movement of the camera, the usage of music, um the kind of like unspoken tensions in a scene like she's just like dialed right into um something that is like 100% cinematic. Like none of these none of these would work as theater or as uh, novels or anything they're they're purely these kind of cinematic um sense-based kind of experiences and and they're really fantastic so sweet well sign me up buddy yeah uh, i gotta jump because i'm gonna go guest on judge john hodgman shortly oh that's awesome to help promote cool. our book our stuff you should know book yes and uh this is great though man I appreciate you walking me down the lonergan path Absolutely. I'm, I'm really, uh, really glad we could do this. Really glad you could see these other two films of his. And 
Um, hopefully, we get to do a follow-up at some point if he makes a fourth feature. Oh, absolutely. He's As soon yeah. as he does it, we'll go see it in the theater. We'll do a rush to uh, Crush to Judgment kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, let's hope. All right. Thanks, bud. It's good seeing you as always. Thank you. And yeah, this is, this is wonderful as usual. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Movie Crush is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce City Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.